to, for the most part, do a little Q&A, find out what's on your mind, any topics, questions, descriptions, anything you might want me to talk about or any questions that you might have. But first I wanted to, I had a few stray thoughts that I thought I'd share and and then we also want to, we have a, sp- a special blessing that we're going to do tonight. We have someone in our midst who is going to give birth in four days, and I couldn't think of anything better than to uh, juice this newborn, this baby, not about to be born baby, with uh, all the all of our um, good wishes and blessings. So we'll do that a little later. First, I wanted to, I, I remembered last week while I was sitting that I spoke a little bit of my grandmother who I was uh, speaking uh, very um, positively about, a grandmother who I was actually quite proud of, who was uh, a Russian immigrant. She was actually four foot nine, but she was had so much uh, shakti, so much power, and uh, was a very philanthropic, very compassionate, but very tough at the same time, and lots of different qualities. But tonight I was thinking about her in an, another context, and that was the fact that not only was she an entrepreneur and a hard worker, but she did not have in her consciousness the concept of vacation. She did not have the concept of the weekend. She did not, because of that, she did not have the idea that there were a few days at the end of the week where she'd be happier than she is right now. She literally worked seven days a week. She worked seven days a week until just before her 104th birthday. And then she died just before her 105th birthday. Just a little backstory. At the age of 89, after she founded this successful business that I spoke of last week, at the age of 89, her, she, was, um, she was getting older, and she was a little concerned about her, all her relatives fighting over her, her business, because she had four children, and each of their children had three children, and so there's a big family of children and grandchildren. And so she started to look for someone to, uh, to buy her business. And so she sold her business to an, another, uh, to another uh, investor, another person who bought companies. She sold her business in 1983 at the age of 89. But she retained her role. This is amazing about her. She retained her role as chairman of the board of her, her business that she had run. And it was essentially run by her two of her grandchildren, two of my cousins. I didn't have anything to do with the business. But she, it was run by two of my cousins and my uncle. But they started to do things over her head without consulting her. And at age 95, she got fed up and she quit. But she didn't just quit. She 
sat around for a few months stewing, and then she took a building that she owned just across the street from her original company and went into competition at age 96. (laughs) She became so successful that the same investor came and bought her out for a second time. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) but the, the... the point of this story is that she just, she just lived. She lived, and for her, her work was her life. And it's not to suggest that your work should be your life or my work should be my life, and it's not to suggest that we shouldn't look forward to the weekend or look forward to things, look forward to things we might have or do, play, uh, people who we will meet, whatever it might be. It's, it produces gladness in our heart, pleasant feelings to look forward to things. But we have, as a general habit, we have made looking, we've raised looking forward to, to uh, high art. We've, we've turned it into an obsession with what's next, obsession with tomorrow, and we've lost touch with the reality of just living in the present moment and not realizing that the mind that is toppling forward into the imagined weekend or vacation or whatever, the mind that's toppling forward, even though it experiences superficially that gladness, that happiness of what, what we are looking forward to, that, that superficial pleasure masks a, an underlying dissatisfaction that grows with the present moment as it is. And often leaves, it leaves our mind and our body in a state of waiting, in a state of hope, in a state of, of slight agitation, often in a state of anxiety with, because there's an implicit knowledge or an internal knowledge that we don't really know how the weekend's going to be exactly. We don't know whether whatever we're going to do or whoever we're going to see, it's going to go well. But yet there's this, this kind of trance, this belief that it's going to make me happier than I am. And I, I know that I share often the teachings of Sri Nisargadatta where he says very simply, nothing can make you happier than you are. That all search for happiness, that means on the weekend, and the vacation, all search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is the natural happiness of conscious being, of being present. Which means, in some ways, looking instead of the weekend, instead of the purchase, instead of the person for our sense of well-being, that we look directly into the nature of our own minds, into the nature of our own experience as it is right now, and find our composure right here. Again, it doesn't mean that we stop looking forward. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the the weekends or our vacations or our purchases. But we handle, we find first and foremost, first things first, the deepest sense of of peace and relief that we're all looking for in the weekend anyway, we find that on the spot. We don't wait for that. That, we cannot find anything that would improve on the sense of of being present here and now. 
what we all can discover, as we talk about every week here, what we can discover in any moment, even the unpleasant ones, when we don't look back and we don't look ahead. As Rumi put it, the cure for pain, which is what drives us to search anyway, the cure for pain is in the pain. It's a, it's a voice that's we're not taught that very often. That the cure for pain is in the pain. It means opening to it. He continues, good and bad are mixed. Everybody has them. He says, if you don't have both, you're not one of us. And I don't think he means this in an absolute way, but then he goes on to say, forget the future. He says, I worship somebody who could do that. But we don't have to forget the future. We just have to see that the future doesn't exist. It's just a fantasy. And it's one that if we mistake it for reality and the source of reality and the source of happiness, we live in a state of waiting and anxiety. But the cure for pain is in the pain. First and foremost, we have to stop and just find our composure with our life as it is. And just for a moment in the span of your life, not look ahead and not look back. And just notice what it's like when you're really present. And notice mostly when you're immediate and present uh, if there's anything missing. I like to say that the only thing that I can ever find truly missing when I'm in the very immediate present, when I'm just awake to things as they are, the only thing that I see missing in that sense of immediacy is my suffering. That I need, as my teacher Punjaji says, I need the past and thoughts to suffer. I need to consult my memory. I need to be reflecting. I need to be planning. I need to be, I need all that to suffer. But I don't need anything. I need nothing to be free. To be free. So my grandmother reminds me that the, I guess my, and the reason I talked about this tonight is because I just had four days a four-day break. And it's a privilege to have a four-day break where I step out of my routine. But I saw again, as I witnessed so clearly with my grandmother, is that uh, the weekend really isn't any better than the week if we really look at it directly. I was no happier this weekend. (laughs) I realized I had a nice weekend. I have a nice family life, and I saw friends, had shared meals, got some fresh air. But I saw, as I've seen for the hundredth time, that even though I, during the week I'd fallen into the illusion that I would be happier at the end of the, by the weekend, I saw that I was no happier. I was no less happy. I realized that whatever degree I was entranced by thinking that the weekend would, would be better, to that degree I had missed the life of the week while, that was being lived. And I'd probably, probably caused a little bit more, um, more of a dulling of my life experience as it was unfolding. 
there's a kind of dulling that takes place in the present moment when I get when I enter into the the virtual world of time of um, future of past there's a loss of of vitality same teacher Nisargadatta so beautifully said reality is what makes the present so vital so different from past and future which are merely mental well, that, that's the only thing I wanted to say tonight is uh, I've I, when I thought of my grandmother only because I had talked about her last week I said wow she just didn't have that concept of being happier on the weekend and she was spared in a way and I'm, I keep having to relearn that. Nothing can make me happier than I am. So then, on the other hand, if you're not on the other hand, but if we reflect on what's so bad about the week that I need the weekend, we can. It may suggest that we're doing something in our life that is incongruent, that's not really in harmony with our heart's desire, our nature, it may mean the way that we're doing it is not in harmony with what would be skillful. We may be doing it with a lot of complaining. That doesn't help. We may be doing it with a... With a um, we may be practicing ill will. We may be not practicing loving kindness. We may be doing all kinds of things during the week that actually make it... Uh, harder to enjoy. So our first, at least our first attempt before we change jobs or change cities or change whatever we need to change, that is if you, if you have a job, for example, right now, some people don't, and how we navigate that, that's another very challenging thing. But the first place to look in terms of our well-being, regardless of our situation, is how am I how am I meeting it? Am I meeting it with with curiosity, with openness? Am I meeting it with with goodwill? Am I meeting it with patience or impatience? Am I meeting it with with pessimism or optimism? And I don't think you actually need to correct how you're doing. You just need to see what you're doing, and that's why we practice mindfulness. We try to see what we are doing with our minds what we're doing with our minds, what we're doing with our bodies, what we're doing in our, our thoughts, what's coming out of our mouth, what's going into our mouth, and see whether or not it's bringing a sense of well-being or whether it's bringing suffering. And then letting the, our natural intelligence that come, that's just uh, embedded in being conscious, letting our intelligence become the cause of of making, uh, developing a wise and loving relationship with the present moment, because that's all we have. It is all we have is this moment. Everything else, other than all of us sitting together tonight, is just an idea. This is it. So how are you right now when you don't look back and you don't look ahead? What's the state of your heart and mind? And then you, if you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. You just refer to that, what's happening now. You can keep asking the question during the day, what's happening? What's the state of my heart and mind? What's my attitude right now? Am I resisting my life? 
Am I grasping for something else? Am I feeling just contentious with everything? Am I relaxed? And our mind will often say, well, I can't relax. I've got things to do. But actually, things get done much more efficiently if I relax. So you get the point. Just wanted to say a little bit about living in the here and now, a little bit about the dharma of non-postponement, not postponing our well-being to some weekend or place or person, but finding it right in this vital spot, the only place that any of us live, which is here and now. So now if we could, if you are now free to consult your memory or just consult what's brewing right now, if you have any questions about meditation practice, anything you notice tonight in your practice, any of the teachings, please try, try to speak up if you can. You love the meditation and the silence tonight. It's exquisite to love silence, and we normally wouldn't list that among your favorite things, right? You took, you took on the 100-day challenge, and you, part of yours was to check in with yourself five times a day and thinking that if you did that, you'd be somehow happier. Right. And I found somehow that I get a sense that I'm flunky. She gets, you get a sense that you're funky. Okay. Funky. Flunking. Flunky. <laughs> That's funky. <laughs> And how do you come to the conclusion? How do you know that you're flunking? So you steal. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you just broke a precept. You took a napkin from a restaurant. Dispenser. <laughs> and do do you catch each one of those things? So this is actually depending on how you're viewing it, what the attitude is. This is really in my as I listen to you, I'm saying yes. It is so important to notice when we transgress, notice our attitude, notice what we're thinking, notice what we're doing. The fact that we, what actually keeps those habits, what perpetuates those habits, is their unconsciousness, is the unconsciousness uh, that we do them with. When you start to be more conscious of doing that kind of thing, you catch it. And that consciousness expands, not just to catch the moment, but to also catch the reverberation of that actually feel how that is. How did that feel when you noticed yourself take the napkin? Or was it more a reflection later? No, it feels really creepy, but then I get angry and I say, but I need this napkin and I'm, you know, I'm 
Right, so it felt creepy, but then you felt, you saw the justifying mind. See, this is all wonderful in terms of mindfulness. In my, you know, in, as that's what mindfulness is. It's just to see what you're doing. I happen to trust that if you kept doing those five t- check-ins or more a day, and you saw how many things that you did were that were unskillful, you would initially pile on and and shoot that second arrow that the Buddha talked about, getting mad about get, getting adding suffering to what's already painful. You would do that at first, but I, I happen to have faith that if you kept doing that, you would start to catch that moment when you're about to take the napkin and perhaps pause a little longer and ask for the napkin. And that y- you may notice yourself beating yourself up or being angry at yourself for doing it. And you may start to have a little more space in your mind and you may have enough presence of mind to know no, harming myself, being mean to myself is not so helpful and it may be the cause of loving kindness. The only way that you can begin to, to make inroads or I'm looking for a word, but somehow influence that pattern of of karma, that pattern of behavior, is to start to pay attention to it. And so it's really good news. But we often, as I think I've read a few times here, we often, when we start, when the light starts shining, we think at first that we're much worse than we were before. But the fact is we're just seeing it more clearly. And, and when you start to feel bad, that means that the, the light's getting brighter. And that I just think that that's really good news. I'm thrilled that you're doing that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just didn't mean to say that you're a thief. <laughs> I've taken napkins that were not offered before, too. <laughs> How many of you have taken napkins that weren't offered? <laughs> See, you have lots of company. <laughs> Anyone else have any? Please. Um, so my question is about your story about your grandmother. Question is a story about my grandmother, yes. She, you know, her, her well-being or her kind of progress and maybe life satisfaction or success wasn't necessarily related to mindfulness. It might have been related to... No, hers wasn't mindfulness, but it was... It was Yeah, she was more in the flow. Yeah, it was, it was more about just not living ahead of herself. Yes, how do we balance truly be in the flow of what we're doing with mindfulness? Well, mindfulness is a... Um, thank you for that question. It's really a good one. When we're really in the flow of, of our work or our art or whatever it is that we're doing, there inevitably we're, we get absorbed in that, and that produces it. There's the, the positive, the pleasant feeling of being engaged or, or absorbed. And just to do that will produce feelings of well-being, but it doesn't produce a lot of wisdom. It doesn't produce a lot of understanding. It doesn't, doesn't help clarify your mind, doesn't help 
clarify your impact on other beings. It doesn't bring wisdom. It brings flow. And that's all beautiful, and everyone should find things that give flow and give pleasure. And we need that for our sense of health to some degree. But the practice of the Dharma is about something else. It's about wisdom. It's about insight. It's about liberating the heart from confusion and from liberating our actions uh, from those that cause suffering to those that bring a sense of well-being, not just for ourselves but for others. So mindfulness is needed to periodically, obviously we can't when we're completely absorbed in something, it's, you can't be continuously mindful, but periodically, if it's important to you, those of, those, for, for those whom mindfulness is important, we will infuse that same day, be willing to relinquish that absorption and whatever that flow is in order to see what the state of my heart and mind is so that I can actually see. Am I, I may be absorbed here, but I may be leaving a trail of, of people that I haven't attended to or I may not be listening to what my body needs. My grandmother, she was a pretty conscious eater actually, but I don't think she got, she didn't get exercise. I think if she would have really tuned into her body more, she probably would have, who, you can't tell much to a person who lives. She would have lived to 107, as Tanya said. <laughs> and she probably, had she brought mindfulness into her practice, she probably would have paused before she yelled at people, and she was a screamer. She could just belittle somebody. Even though she was wildly philanthropic and compassionate, she could also be... an. an in immediate situations, she would just discharge whatever ill will she was feeling. And for that, she needed mindfulness. So she wasn't a perfect saint. She was an interesting, successful, kind of a living legend in the Midwest. The unfortunate thing, given that, just going back to that, I I hesitate because I know this goes around the world. Uh, People listen. But she, after she quit her original company, because she felt her grandchildren weren't, weren't um, respecting her, she went on national TV on all the programs, 60 Minutes, 48 Hours, Today's Show, uh, Good Morning America, all those, and called her grandchildren names. <laughs> and I won't tell you what the names were, but that her, their mother was not very happy. But she was, that was her... Her prerogative, I suppose, but not something I would want to do. So she was great and wonderful, and she was flawed like the rest of us and could have used some mindfulness. If anyone wants to hear what she called, you can come up afterwards. (laughs) Please. It was a retail furniture store. But it wasn't just an ordinary <laughs> retail furniture store. It was a... Well, she was, it was, she was a classic Horatio Alger story. You know, came here with nothing after, with a lot of suffering in her background. And by herself, not her husband, she started this business in the basement of her house and it grew to be a... a nice size business and and 
and the national media picked up on it because she was an interesting story, and she spoke with a very thick Russian accent, but clear as a bell, and so she was an interesting person, and she was philanthropic, and I think that's what really people really loved her. She, people worshipped her for her, for her philanthropy, her goodwill. Mixed bag, every one of us. Please, Noemi. When you talk about being in the pain. Yes, being in the pain. Um, how do you balance that without wallowing? How do you balance being in the pain without wallowing it? The only way to wallow is to think about it. So if you don't keep the story going about the pain, then you can't wallow. It just becomes a, a, a living, changing condition. And then... Exactly. Let go of the story. Well said. Mm-hmm. Or just notice the story, but don't feed it. Yeah. Thank you for that. Please. Pick up a lot of anxiety. No, a high level of anxiety. I think you're I think you're on to something, no doubt. Yes, so you're wondering you think it may be the collective anxiety that you're picking up on. I think you're right that more and more there's so much anxiety. On one hand, there's nothing new under the sun. People have always been in, un, lived in uncertainty, and anxiety is, is, a, is actually more prevalent than we know. But it, is, it does seem particularly acute right now. I, I resonate with what you're saying. What do you do with it? Well, how do you process it? The first thing... I don't have the absolute answer on this, but I'll tell you what, what has been so important for me working with what I consider that sense of picking up on the anxiety. Because I, I work with people, and so I, I feel like I, get, I absorb a, a lot. I mingle psyches with a lot of people, and so I, I can relate to that. Although some people are more what we would call empath types, who just feel as though they really don't have a, a sense of they don't know where they stop and the world begins. And some of us, there's a continuum. Some people absorb more. But even for those people who would be called empaths who are absorbed more, I think as a working practice, we have to... You know, there's a joke that you can make that when you, when you have a lot of thoughts going through your head, just you're, you're having monkey mind, that it's good to imagine that they're coming from your neighbor. And sometimes it makes it, it creates a little space. But when it comes to difficult feeling states, I think it's actually, it, it actually makes it more difficult when we, when we frame it in our mind as though the states are coming from others. That it's actually better as a working practice to consider whatever anxiety in this case that you feel, to consider it your own. To 
Because as soon as you think it's everyone else, we feel a lot more helpless, a lot more out of control, and just don't know what to do. When you recognize it as your own, treat it as your own, you, at least at the sphere of what you have to attend to, narrows a little bit. And you start to distinguish what's my business, what's other people's business. You just start to have a sense of what you can actually work with. So you have to start with, again, this is a working principle because I also agree that we do absorb things. We, we are collectively connected. But as a working principle, you start with, I'm feeling anxious right now. So if I say, if, if you checked in right now, are you feeling anxious right now? Okay, so at least now that you're not feeling so anxious, you know that anxiety is not continuous. It, it comes and it goes. So that's good that you're... And it's important to know when it's present, whether it's others or your own, when it's present and when it's absent. Because otherwise our mind will create a, a monolithic world of everybody's anxious and all the time. When in fact, right now, you're just telling me you're not even feeling anxious right now. Great. But if you start to feel it, you just notice, oh, this is anxiety. And you sense, this is, and I'm feeling anxious. And maybe you could expand a little bit and notice what the story of your anxiety is, if it has a little narrative associated with it. I don't know what to do. I'm worried about the future or whatever it might be. Anxiety is usually about what's next. It's often not about what's happening now. But already, when you're working with it as your own experience, it's much more workable than having to solve everybody else's anxiety. So that's, to me, that's been the most helpful thing is just treat everything as my own. Even though when we look more deeply meditatively, there's a different dimension where we see that nothing is our own, that everything is just arising according to conditions, passing away, that anxiety is anxious, that anxiety arises of itself based on a thought or whatever it is. It comes into consciousness, it affects the body, and then it passes away. And that, it, that it's... Um, that it's not yours, it's not anybody's. It's just anxiety. So there's different ways of working with it. One, to treat it as your own. Then another, to see the selflessness of it. I think with anxiety, I, I see with little kids that get anxious or scared, what do they need? Often they need to be held. They need to be reassured. And I think we need to learn to do that to ourselves if we're not so good at it. I do it my, to myself with little heart rubs. I rub my heart. Often we'll add the famous Joseph Goldstein mantra, it's okay. It's okay. I will, um, I'll do something nice for myself. I might take a hot shower, a hot bath. You know, just things that are soothing, that are comforting. Try not to use as a habit distracting myself. However, periodically, I might want to take my attention away from the anxiety just to remind myself that it, the whole world isn't anxiety, that I can actually look at something and maybe even take in the beauty of it, or I may even be able to feel some other part of my body that's not anxious. Those kinds of things where I shift away, but I try to stay conscious. I try not to go unconscious when I do that. So I try not to distract myself by 
by getting lost. So I think that's all I'll say about that. But thanks for the question because you're not alone and we're not alone. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of people suffering right now in an unusual way. And we still have to resolve it as our own experience. Wow, it's nine o'clock. Time flies. So let's just sit for a few moments and then... uh, Maybe I'll, as a prelude to our ending, I'll share, in spite of the enormity of suffering that we have within and without, just the the unspeakable amount of suffering there is in our lives and in this world uh, that we not forget as a way of dealing with our anxiety and pain, where it, wherever it may be, that we not forget to take delight. So I end with a poem called uh, A Brief for the Defense by Jack Gilbert. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what life wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness of their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the demons. If the locomotive of life runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit that there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes, one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. So if you're able to, let's just delight in this present moment, in our generosity of our company, and just consider that if there's been any benefit, any goodness, any blessing, any merit, any fruits to our being together, that we that we share it all with all beings everywhere, and especially into this circle of goodwill and blessings, 
we bring Tanya and her about-to-be-born baby and shower all the blessings of our life and our practice on them and direct the deepest wishes that we have for ourselves, the same wishes that we have for ourselves to all beings everywhere and to Tanya and her baby, the deep wish that we can all be happy and they can be happy. We can all be peaceful. We can be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. That we can be healthy and strong and accept our limitations graciously. And a deep wish that we can find ease of well-being. A deep wish that we can find serenity and equanimity that we're able to meet the joys and the sorrows with balance, acceptance, and a deep wish that we can find that sacred happiness here and now that's without sorrow and not spend our lives waiting, hoping, expecting, find peace with things just as they are. And ultimately, May we wish that our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of others. May all beings be free and happy. May Tanya and her baby be free and happy. May all beings be liberated. Thank you for your presence, your participation. Just a reminder, as usual, that uh, the room rental is $150 a night. Any help with the room rental, room rental Donna, we call it. Generosity is appreciated. Any of the teaching that's offered here is offered freely, and uh, the invitation is for you to offer your support freely in the, in the basket over there. This is also the last call for the December uh, rent. If you, I'll be sending checks. Anyone who writes a check to the St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church where we're meeting and puts Mission Dharma on the line at the bottom, your, tech, your check will be a tax-deductible donation uh, if, you're, if you care to offer Donna in that way to, for room rental. And thank you for your teacher Donna, room rental Donna. Thanks for your practice. And there was one more announcement from Carlos who is has a performance. Make it quick, if you can. Tribute to the poetry of Langston Hughes at the Red Red Poppy Art House, Twenty Third and Folsom. Saturday night at six thirty. Come one, come all, Caroline. Anyway, love being with you all, and please be mindful. Stay where you are.